the idea right now is what's really going on in financial markets, which means what is the real theory about theories? So I thought that was great. Well, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put um, I'm going to put your presentation into the nest. Okay. Um, so you can uh, well basically why don't we cover why don't we start with sort of the highlights things that have gone on in the market over the weekend because I think there's been right. a lot of uh, stuff you've right. been following. Do you want to kind of start yeah. there? Yeah. Now Carl and I are thinking of probably doing a bunch of these uh, discussions, interviews, whatever. Over the next while, and we sort of got into the model that I'm personally using the the, the, the intellectual model, the thinking model of the the approach last week. But I want to do it a little more carefully this time because it sets the context for the discussion here, and I think it's quite unique compared to what a lot of uh, value guys or or chart guys are doing. And I think after this, this will sort of set the pace, and as we get into other assets and what's going on in the future. It'll set set the base, but this is quite different from the Financial Times, the macro guys on Twitter, all kinds of commentators. Uh, you know the, the Ray Dalio's of the world and the Grantham's of the world and the Bond guys. This is different. So this is the one time we'll, we'll take a choice to do it. So in terms of what's happening, the fir- the very first chart. I'm not going to get into the specifics of of what's been happening with the banks until a bit later. Okay, there's only about uh, eleven uh, eleven pages here, something like that. The first one basically talks about uh, the equity markets because I'm primarily at this point been focusing on equity, and uh, basically it would be uh, this: if you look at when we started into this bear market sometime in 21, if you look at these charts and they come from Elliott Wave from uh, Practor, I like his charts. You've got the Dow, you've got the value line, you've got the Russell, the NASDAQ, and the S&P. And you can see a definitive bear market starting in uh, early 2022, it was January the 4th. But here's what's interesting, and there's two things that are interesting. First of all, a real uh, impulse downward movement in the stock price is an impulse wave. It's a 53535. It's like almost a straight line down. We started this with what's called a diagonal. So it's sort of a modest, a modest move down. So it, it hasn't been that intense yet. You know, Practor thinks it'll get real intense. We'll see. Now that lasted for about three or four, or, or I guess four or five months. That was intermediate one with the bracket around it. Then we had the correction uh, up, and in the Dow Jones, it was an upwards correction, up, down, and up. That's where we are right now. And then the three wave uh, value line, Russell. NASDAQ, the S&P, it was a zigzag. Those corrections uh, eliminated, which corrections always do, fit, uh, 50 to 60% of the downdraft. That was just a normal correction. Now, it's interesting that during 2022, every time we went into that three-way correction, you'll see A, B, and C for the Dow and for the other stocks as well. Uh, for the last uh, six or seven months, you'll see A, B, C in one case. Then it's... Uh, yeah, it's the ABC uh, correction. Uh, people felt we're in a bull market, and then we thought we're in a bear market, and then we thought we're in a bull market. Well, these are just normal corrections. The way you can tell it's a correction is because the stock market is going sideways. That's what corrections always look like. And uh, so that's where we're at. And, and we have not had a, a, a downdraft, even last week by Friday, that really told us that the world's getting any more scary necessarily, although the S&P was starting to show something significant. So we'll see. 
Now, if you look at the Bitcoin price, there's a one-year chart for the Bitcoin there. People are feeling pretty excited. But I've got a one-year Bitcoin chart there for, you know, uh, on the bottom right. What that shows is that we're still in a correction on Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin's, you know, picking its head up a little bit, but it's still in a sideways correction pattern. And in fact, that last pattern for the last uh, uh, month and a half, somebody pointed out on Twitter today, it's a triangle, which is a corrective pattern, higher high and lower lower. So, so that's okay, but there's nothing there that's particularly long-term that's showing. Um, so that's, you know, that's what the market by Friday was telling us. By way of background. Yep. Okay. Uh, can I move on to two? You can, okay. sir. Now, look, number two talks about um, what's really going on. And I get away from the latest news, the latest uh, Kramer, the latest, you know, uh, social media commentary, the latest uh, macro news, somebody complaining about the Fed to say what's really going on. Now, my theory personally, and I, I picked it up from Elliott Wave and from George Soros and from Nicholas Taleb and all these guys, you know, thinking about it, trying to struggle, what causes markets to move. The theory I've adopted, which I believe, for, you know, for now, and I've been thinking of for a long time, is that the stock market is simply a voting mechanism, like Buffett says, but it's not a voting mechanism about what something is worth. It's a voting mechanism about how people feel. People buy and sell stocks emotionally and because they're there, they're liquid. It's a huge casino. And that's essentially what it is. It's not as rigged as Vegas, but but that's what it is. Uh, if it was simply hard assets, if you own those assets directly, restaurants, uh, hotels, tour guides, real estate, it wouldn't be going up and down. The valuation, the price would be way, way less. But what you have here is something that the values, the prices are five or six times what their fundamental valuation is. And if people are interested, I, I could write that up and just send it out. So you've really got a, 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 an index of, 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 of where the world is socially, how it's feeling. Now, so, we, so there's two things I have on this slide. On the left, socioeconomical terms, the, so, the social, social historical cycles. And that's, that's what Prechter has, you know, socioeconomics. And here's your cycle. I'll go through it a couple of times here. You go from war. And I'll demonstrate this shortly. Society rebuilds. Number three, people work. They save, they invest, they feel good. Income equality. Everyone's getting richer, happier, etc. Five, things get really good, but the next generation is not motivated because they had it easy. Governments start to hand out free money, keep it going. Asset bubbles, inflation starts. Wealth inequality. That's what we're seeing right now. Social unrest. We're seeing that. Political fears. We're seeing that in Congress and in Canada. Assets crash, and then six to twelve bubbles, handouts, uh, civil, uncivil behavior keeps going on, and then you go back to step one, which is war. And I'll sh I'll show the last two cycles in a minute. That's that's what happens politically. Now, how does it tie into money? Okay, well, when you talk about money, you know we're seeing stuff about bank runs, contagion, collapse of the system is. So let's let's see what really happens and how long these things really take and what's really happened with money. And I'll I'll do this sort of quickly, but the stuff on the right side, you can see that right to um, right. Yeah, oh. and you can take your time, okay. Sid. It's okay. okay. You can go All through right. it. So look, these cycles, uh, I say at the very top, cycles are fractals. Fractals are, are things in nature where everything is contained inside itself and everything 
is contained inside of something else which looks just like itself. The world is fractal. And if you're going to do technical analysis, it's waves. You have to understand fractals because that's what they are. That's not my original concept. That's, uh, that's Taleb. That's, that's R.N. Elliott, Elliott Wave. That's uh, Bob Prechter. And that's important. People don't generally talk about it. But another way to look at it is that when you do wave theory, if you're doing technical analysis, you have to look at the price movements, uh, the hours over one day, the days over a week, uh, the, the months, the years then five years, 10 years, then you start to understand, you can start to see the patterns evolve with lots of practice. But if you don't do that, uh, you're going to make lots of mistakes because frankly, you can almost pick any pattern you want. So it's, it's fractal. Now let's put it in the money terms. And I'm now going to describe how money systematically step-by-step was, was uh, basically eliminated. Now, now we're going to an even more extreme stage of eliminating real money uh, since 1789, 1792. And in terms of cycles, and I'm, a lot of people talk about this, we're at the end of basically what's called a grand super cycle. It started around 1789, 1790. The cycle before that started in 1720. That was number two. And then the, uh, the cycle before that was 1492, the time of Columbus, believe it or not. And there's lots of the long cycle guys, you know, get this. Um, People start to really think about cycles in bear markets and in bull markets. Uh, people don't talk much about cycles. That's sort of interesting, and there's a reason for that. So the small cycles, and we're at the end of one of these small cycles, is 70 to 100 years. That's three generations. The big cycles are 200 years. Now, bear markets uh, in, in the big cycles last about 70 years, but bull markets last about 200 years. And we're at the end of probably, according to Prechter, a pretty major bull market, which was from 1790 up until now. So he thinks there's a big bear coming. These big bears last 70 years. Uh, a medium bear lasts two or three years. A medium bull lasts 10 years. A long bull lasts 200. And we've got bears inside bulls and bulls inside bears. And that's why uh, a lot of people who don't really focus on this in detail get confused and they buy high and they sell low because they don't appreciate that. It's a longer discussion, but, but, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm not the first person to say it. I'm not the last person. It's taken me a long time to understand it, but I, I think I get it, etc. Now, American and French Revolution started. That was a new political system, new economies. That was late 1790s. The U.S. Congress defined money to be gold, period. A certain amount of gold and 3,712 3, grains of silver and 247.5 grains of gold was one dollar. That's it. That's what it was. Gold worked out to be twenty dollars an ounce, nineteen thirty-nine. Now, if you want to know why they did that, that's because Alexander Hamilton at the Treasury and Theater and um, Jack Jefferson and all those guys—they knew Greek history, they knew Roman history, they knew about the South Sea bubble and what happened. And they wanted to avoid all the problems, and that's why they did it. They knew economics really well. Now, here's where here's where real economics starts to work out. People started to hoard gold, and it went out of circulation. They kept it for themselves. They just did silver. Why is that? Because they felt, people felt nationally, there was, more, there was less gold around than silver. So gold went up and silver went down. Gresham's Law, bad money drives out good money. And that may be what you're seeing right now in the markets. We'll talk about that. 1834, they had the, the Coinage Act because gold was stronger than silver, and they didn't want it to be. So then they, they changed the ratio to try to match economics. Then you had the gold rush. 
California gold rush mid-1850s. Well, guess what happened? Gold went down. People started to hoard silver and use gold. So in 1837, they had to change the ratio again. So gold was now, you know, 2067 uh, was what an ounce of gold was worth. Then you had the Coinage Act they go, where the silver standard ends. Why? Because they want to stay with gold because the rest of the world was on gold and gold was leaving the United States. So they had to respond to the world economy. Uh, and then gold became the only standard in 1900. Now, in 1897, there was depression and there was unrest in the United States that is at least as serious as what you're seeing in America right now, if not worse. Farmers are going bust. The Gilded Age after World War, after uh, the Civil War was over, there was starvation. It was horrible. And the farmers wanted inflation. They were begging for inflation. They wanted to go on the silver standard. Well, Grover Cleveland, the Democrats, refused to do that. He wanted solid money. As a result of that, the feds were out for 15 years. Uh, the, the Democrats were out for 15 years. So exactly the way society looks like right now, that's what it looked like back then. And, and they stayed in the gold standard. However, you had another uh, depression in 1907 because there wasn't enough money. And you're, you're starting to see communism. You're starting to see fascism before World War I. Believe it or not, society was at real risk. The Democrats finally come in. Woodrow Wilson starts the Fed. And that's when money started to be paper. Money started to become treasury bills. And that... The, those changes since then have, are now really starting to get big, and I'll, I'll describe that later. Roosevelt, now people say, well, you know, let's just use Bitcoin. Well, look, that's what they said about gold. And I'm not saying you can or you can't, but Roosevelt made gold illegal. If you held gold in 1934 and there afterwards until the 60s, there's a $10,000 there fine, which in today's currency is like, like a million dollars, and you went to jail. So, you know, Controlling money was so big, and Roosevelt trying to stop a revolution in the 30s, which was happening, was so big that they completely got off the gold standard in actual fact. And gold went from being 20 bucks an ounce to 35 bucks an ounce. And that was only for being able to pay internationally, because internationally people are the gold standard. So the dollar immediately fell by 41%. So when you read about how the dollar's fallen by 98% in the last hundred years. In one day alone, Roosevelt caused one half of that decline, which tells you what governments will do when they're desperate. And it tells you what could happen if things were to get desperate uh, at this point in time. Uh, oh, so far, so good, Carl? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yep. Keep, keep okay. going. Kennedy, we still had silver backing for silver certificates. Uh, Kennedy eliminates that in 1960 because silver is... There's people go to the government and they want the silver for their currency and they're running out of silver. That's interesting. Kennedy, uh, 63, the Silver Act is reversed. All money is backed only by treasury bills. And we'll talk about treasury bills as we move along. In the Coinage Act, 1965, all silver is removed from coins. So now you can see paper, 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 fiat, fiat, fiat in the extreme. Nixon now takes official gold. Not that it mattered, but it sort of mattered internationally a little bit to one thirty-eighth of an ounce. So we've gone from twenty bucks an ounce to one one thirty, you know, to uh, way less than that. You know, one twentieth of an ounce to one fortieth of an ounce. Nixon does it even even worse, and then he tells foreigners he's not going to redeem foreign gold. So if you wonder why 
uh, you got U.S. colonialism, U.S. military action, U.S. you know buttressing gold, sticking on the gold standard uh, for for oil. Uh, everyone has to borrow in U.S. dollars. Well, that's because of what, what was happening with, with the dollar. You had Vietnam. You start to have big debts. That's starting to build. You can't be in any way stuck to gold. And now you're you're not going to have gold anywhere uh, with the currency. And all these euro dollars have been used with the Marshall Plan, with Bretton Woods, etc. So now the, the U.S. dollar, because of the military strength of the U.S., is um, is gold for now. If, if I can use that term called Bitcoin, but that's what people have to use. And that's what's causing these swap lines to start to be used dramatically today, which is, you know, was in the news a bit later that, you know, countries are starting to get serious issues with not having enough U.S. dollars. So the swap lines have been increasing today. In 1972, the U.S., the, the dollar gets even less. It's gone from one thirty-eighth of an ounce to one over 42.22 of an ounce. Deficit continues to grow. And by the way, around 1965, in gold terms or inflation terms, the Dow Jones Industrial Average peaked. It didn't get back to that level until the late 90s. And right now we're back to the 1965 level in, in, in inflation-adjusted calculations, which is actually the value of the Dow Jones in 1929. So if millennials are feeling sort of poor, if they're feeling it's hard to get ahead, and if the Gini coefficient and the other calculations of inequality are getting bigger all the time, and if you're seeing inflation in the rest of the world, that's why. Now you can see why. Because there really has not been a lot of economic growth now, net, since 1929, which is pretty interesting. And the, the statistics are there, the numbers are there. So what, I, what I'm saying is that the left-hand side of that page, talking about social cycles, and the right-hand side of the page, talking about monetary cycles, are pretty much in tune. It's the social cycles that set the monetary cycles. That's very important. Now, the next slide is called equities and bonds. You never really know why they're priced where they're priced. With all those different guys on it, you see that one, Carl? Okay. Yep. Warren Buffett, I've been reading him, following him for a long time. He's got multiple theories. He doesn't believe any one theory, and he's said that many times. Jesse Livermore, the world's greatest, most successful um, stock speculator, makes Soros look unsuccessful, said, you never know why the price of an instrument is what it is. You just have to follow what's going on. Go with the flow, but that, that takes a talent. George Soros, who's written tons of books, and I find he's awfully honest in what he writes as far as I can tell, all theories are fertile fallacies. They're useful things that aren't true. And he explains that in great detail in his writings. He's got tons of them on his website. He describes it as well. Nassim Taleb, uh, fooled by randomness, anti-fragile, et cetera, et cetera, famous dude. He's not worth a billion, but he's probably worth $250 million. Uh, Very good guy. Everything is random. You get fooled by randomness. Another word for being fooled by randomness is called superstition. Ray Dalio, everything is historical cycles. He does a good job on it. John Maynard Keynes, Keynesian economics, which, by the way, what they used in Keynesian economics is not Keynesian economics. They've just used his name and they've they faked it. How do I know that? Because I studied it from the direct books he wrote, and I study all these guys directly. I never – well, secondary sources are interesting, but what they teach at university and what people write about, you've got to go there. What, what did the guy actually say? And Keynes said, prices, who knows why they're what they are. People try to guess what other people think. They're going to go to. 
etc. And that's because they water down the content, right? They kind of put their own spin on it? Well, it's because if you uh, bought a business, you got a business, I got a business. If you were doing your own real estate and you weren't financing it publicly, you'd be paying four times earnings or five times earnings and that's it, period. Private businesses yeah. don't go for yeah, more than private that. Side. You go into the yeah. public sector, you're paying 100, 200, three times earnings even even the pretend earnings, which they use, and I can demonstrate that. I'm a CA. I'm pretty good at it. Are, are you know forty times, thirty times, twenty times? I mean, that's huge. That's five times. Even if you believed it, that's five times what a private business would be. So basically, everything is a meme stock. Everything is a is a non fungible token. It's it, it, that's why the, the, it's a casino. Um, that's right. the reason. And then, of course, people have to justify the price. They come up with a theory. What George Soros calls a fertile fallacy, and Keynes calls uh, trying to guess what somebody else is going to do. Now, the guy who invented uh, technical analysis, R.N. Elliott, he came up with the charts, he came up with the graphs, and uh, he was the dude that came up with with uh, cycle and wave theory. Everyone took up took off after him. He wrote a book called Nature's Law, which is fantastic, and if you wanted to understand. Uh, technical analysis, really, and, and stock cycles, really, R.N. Elliott. Two types of up cycles, two types of up waves, three or four types of down waves. Down waves are always way more complicated than up waves, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he's the man. And he says, look, here's how Wall Street works in terms of explaining why something happens. First it happens, then they explain it. But they never explain what's going to happen because they don't know. Bob Prechter is the modern version of R.N. Elliott. He's about 80 right now. That's him in front of the Big Bear Cafe. Uh, he does the Elliott Wave newsletter. He's got a whole bunch of guys. He's, he's, he's wonderful. And I think anyone that wants to understand uh, what stocks really do, they don't not teach that at university. They have no idea. Bob Prechter is outstanding in, in, in that. Kenny Rogers. The reason I like Kenny Rogers is because the song, the condition of the condition is what it's all about. What condition is your condition in? People who talk about fundamentals will talk about the condition. But it's not about the condition. It's about the condition of the condition. What's the, big, what's the theory you're using? And, and why do you use that theory? And what are you really doing? Because people change their theory from moment to moment. The conch shell right there is what waves look like. Elliott waves, uh, cycle waves are based on the Fibonacci. They're based on growth curves. If you look at that conch shell, you see how it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then as it slows down, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's what the stock market does. Bigger and bigger, smaller and smaller. Bigger and bigger, smaller and smaller. Every big at, at the top is bigger than the last big. And every small is smaller than the last small. And that happens over hundreds and thousands of years. And that's the best model, I would say. And if you look at stock charts, minute charts, hour charts, weekly charts, monthly charts, you see the same pattern, small and big. And the big pattern contains the small pattern. Now, Mathematically, therefore, you know, you get what is the price? Price is a function of, well, price is a function of two things P, DP by DT, and D squared P by DT squared. Meaning, the price is a function of the price. The price is a function of how fast the price is moving. And the price is a function of the acceleration. So, if the price is high of a stock or a bond or a financial instrument like a REIT, then the price will be high. Now, if the prices are going up, they'll go up even higher. And if they're going up even faster and faster, they'll go up even faster and faster. 
And then something happens, people get less excited because of where we are socially, and then it reverses. That is the basic model for pricing. Number two, T equals M, time equals money. It's all about the momentum and things are always changing. So I go with all these guys' theories as I put it together, and now I'll show you the, the two cycles. I'll show you the cycle we're at the end of and the cycle before then, and then we'll get back into what's happening uh, in the last two or three days in the world financial markets when it comes to banks, if that's okay. Yeah. Any questions or yep. comments so far? No, I think people are just listening. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll, once this is wrapped up, we'll, we'll take questions, etc. Okay, chart number four, example of a cycle. These, these pictures go from left to right, first top and then bottom. Here was the cycle of the 19th century. The Civil War blew everything up. 10% of Americans got killed. The Gilded Age, massive economic boom, 1866 to 1896. Peace, tranquility, prosperity. But guess what? Inequality develops. For the same reasons we've had inequality here for the last 20 or 30 years. And now you see what, what people are complaining about. Big, fat business guys, trust everybody else is a slave. 1893, you get a depression. 1907, you get a, a stock market crash. What happens? Woodrow Wilson uh, brings in the currency law, brings in the Fed. World War I, that's over. You start to rebuild the Roaring Twenties. And you remember what happened next. That was a super cycle, 1861 to 1929. Uh, that, was a, uh, uh, that was actually a super cycle. So there's one cycle, a small cycle. Basically, 18, at 67-year cycle, okay? Now, let's see what happens after that. That's, now it's slide five. You know your next cycle, World War II. People are happy. They're fighting the good fight. 1950, gee, how things have changed. Uh, everyone's happy. There's granddad. And he's happy he's still alive. And, they're, you know, they have a wiener roast. Everything is good. 1968, inequality is developing. That's in the United States. That's, that's riots, protests, fires. Kent State, students get killed. The Army shoots them. And then you have, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter version of 1970, recession, strikes. They inflate the economy. Things pick up again. The year, it's greed. There's Michael Douglas looking awfully good, I must say. Uh, you know, greed is good. Warren Buffett. But look where the greed is good to take us. 2023, massive riots, protests, poor social mood, and now the bank run of 2023. That cycle is 70 years. It's uh, about as long as the cycle before, 70, 80 years. And most guys who are under 30 aren't even aware of what 1980 looked like because they were born after 1980. But when you study these things, that's what a cycle is. And you're right in the middle of one. And that's why fractals are important. When you realize you're in the middle of a fractal, and what's the bigger fractal look like, and what's that bigger fractal look like, you start to be able to understand how to build a portfolio and what's really going on, what you can change, what you can't change, and what's really important. So I, so I hope, I don't think we'll do this again, but, you know, from now on, if we're talking about technicals, charts, cycles, the fact that the Fed can't do anything at all, only people that can do anything is the government. They, they can print money and spend it. They can declare war, and they can bring out the military. That's, that's about all they can do. But the Fed cannot control markets. Just like they couldn't control the gold price, the silver price, you can't control the interest rate. We'll talk about that momentarily. So I'll get right now in a minute on slide six to what's happening as of now. Any questions or comments, Carl, and, 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 uh, at, at present? You know what? Uh, I can think of a lot of questions as you're going through it, but I think it's just 
really good to let you kind of rift on on all of these. Okay. And then we'll go we'll go backwards. A bit. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Now we're we're half done, so now I'm going to talk to what's happening right now. Now slide number six is called fundamentals: the current digital paper fiat money problem. Okay. Uh, if I ask the average guy, even on this thing, tell me what money is, I don't think they'd be able to tell. I, I'd have trouble, right? You know exactly what is money. Okay. There's four kinds of money right now. Now J.P. Morgan said money is gold, and what he meant by that was it's something you can't screw with. Um, but that's no longer the case. So there's four types of money right now that the Fed tracks, and that's it. This is all there is. And this is what, what's been moving around, which has been causing this bank contagion. And this is the different parts of these types of money is what you read about in the press. So on Twitter, on, on YouTube, on everything else, on the press, uh, et cetera, uh, they don't break it up exactly. So I broke it up here so people, could, people know right away. Fiat currency is pure cash. Now, in June of 2020, there was $2 trillion of cash, that's a lot of money, in the U.S., plus the euro market. In March of 2023, there was $2.3 trillion. That's a 15% increase in like three years. That's pretty, that's pretty huge. There's fiat currency. That's sort of scary. You wonder about inflation. Bank deposits. This is money created by banks. Even though some people might know this, might hear about it, banks actually create money, not governments. You know, uh, almost almost half of the money out there is bank created. You go to a bank, you get a car loan. You just created money. The bank debits receivables and credits payable. Payable is your balance of, of cash that you can use to buy the car. Receivable is what you owe the bank. Banks are money. Banks create money. Now, when people pull money out of banks, all of a sudden we we got a credit problem in the world. We have a demand problem. We have an economic problem. Now, in June 2020, bank deposits were 15.5 trillion U.S. domestic bank deposits. In March of 2023, it was 18 trillion. That's like three trillion. That's like 20 percent increase in three years. That's pretty scary, don't you think? I mean, that, that's massive. It is. And that's yep. what it's taken to, to, to keep the stock market from going back to where it was in 2020. That's pretty interesting. Now, the uninsured portion of that money. Is seven trillion, and the big six regionals, the big six regionals, four hundred sixty billion of that. That's where you're getting the problem. The uninsured. Now, nobody ever worried about uninsured deposits. When did you even hear about people worrying about getting money out of the bank? Well, all of a sudden, last week, it's a problem. That's a bit of a shock if you think about it. And there could be much bigger shocks. I'll talk about afterwards. Maybe there will, there won't. But the potential for the bigger shocks are much huger. Okay. Um, Fraud, uh, internal control systems, blah, blah, blah. None of that has anything to do with what's going on. Zero. Absolutely zero. People, some people have gotten scared about the value of money. Well, that's a surprise given that they've been you know, inflating for, for a gazillion years. People are starting to worry about it. That's why the interest rates have gone up. Uh, why, did, why did the yield curve invert? Why did the short-term rates go up? Well, People that haven't got credit and people that can't borrow, do they borrow long or do they borrow short? Well, they borrow from the mob. Those are always short-term loans. They borrow short-term. Uh, they can't get long-term loans. The demand for short-term was getting very aggressive, was getting high because credit cards, 25%. People are funding their lives on credit cards. And companies starting to worry about credit. That's why the curve inverted to end the story. What does the Fed do? The Fed doesn't do any. When they see the rate going up and the rate's going from 0% to 1% to 3% in the treasury bill market, 
And when the Fed rates 0.5%, it's a bit embarrassing if you don't take your rate up, because if you don't, people realize you can't do anything. And that's why the rate goes up and down. And when people say, well, the, the rates are going up, the future rates are up, that means people think the Fed's going to take the rate up. Well, of course, the Fed's going to take the rate up because the Fed has to catch up to the real market. And um, that is, uh, uh, you know, pretty uh, interesting once you realize that it's it's a bit like uh, <laughs> COVID. There's a lot of stuff going on that's just not true that people are talking about. So there's your bank deposits that banks create. And now the, when the money gets pulled out of the banks, it's a problem because now these loans have to be called. And when you call the loans, uh, all of a sudden the economy tubes incredibly quickly. And that's what started to happen last week, you know, the week before last, uh, just before uh, the incredible president, uh, Joe Biden, showed up on, on YouTube to tell everyone everything was in good shape. Central bank reserves, that's the only time that the bank actually creates money. They buy bonds and they transfer cash to the commercial banks to keep them liquid. That's $3 trillion, but now it's starting to move up again. Finally, the treasuries, treasury bonds, treasury bills, that's, uh, that's just over half of the total money supply. Now, that's where the problem has come with bank liquidity. As the market, the stock market, supply and demand for bonds, I'm sorry, the, the, the bond market, as that market demand was, in, was going to 4 or 5% interest, and as banks were paying 0% or 0.5% interest, people started to shift money into money market funds. Money market funds bought bonds. The money market funds uh, went to the, disc, to the um, reverse repo market. They lent money to the government, and that's what caused the illiquidity problem. It wasn't internal controls. It wasn't Sam Bankman freed. It wasn't you know, the auditors. It, it was, that's what it was. It was high interest rates being caused by the marketplace, and that's being caused by risk perceptions and being caused by too much borrowing. So that's what money is, and that's where these problems started. I'll go through it a bit more, but that's what, when you read the legislation that's coming in and what they're trying to deal with, those are the four things they're dealing with. There's nothing else they can do. They have to deal with one of those four things. They either print fiat currency, they either tell the banks they can lend more money, but nobody wants their money, which means they have to now guarantee 100%, and that's what's coming in right now. And the central banks may have to put more money into the other banks, uh, and that's that's starting to happen. And treasuries, of course, the treasuries are now growing dramatically. You had quantitative tightening, and uh, and now it's getting reversed in order to keep the banks alive. Slide seven. Can I move ahead? Yeah, okay. sure. So now we're talking. Okay, well, what's happening right now? Right now, meaning between uh, Friday at four and a couple hours ago. I'm I'm up to date at least to two hours ago. The bank term funding program, I like what Zero Hedge calls it, the BTFP by the something uh, pivot. That's actually cute. Uh, banks don't want to go to the discount window, which is the, which is the boring of, of, uh, of, of last resort if they need money to keep cash uh, on their balance sheet so they can pay it. But they got the BTFP program, and that is now actually pretty funny because before, when they had to fake money, they, they, they put the gold content down. They took the silver content down. They watered down the value of money. But what the BTFP does is they now say, they now, not only do they, do they create money, cash money, with treasury bills, but with the treasury bills and the bonds going down on, with, with the interest rates, 
Now they're saying we're going to value those apart. You can, the only thing you can do better than that is basically over value them at more than what their par value is. But you know, it used to be a hundred dollar, a uh, hundred dollar cash, which is worth a hundred in gold, was then worth fifty in gold, ten in gold, no gold. Now it's worth hundred dollars of cash. Actually, represents fifty dollars of, of paper it was but before. It's getting pretty extreme. So we're we're moving into new territory here, really new territory. You know, watering down currency was one thing. With, with with silver, gold, oil, commodities, Bitcoin, but watering it down with more water, that's that's impressive. Uh, bank runs in progress. Well, we'll see if there are bank runs or not, but we know there's been one half trillion shifted into the money market, which means people are actually running from the banks, not not to the banks. And uh, that's that's where it may have a contagion, and that's what they're trying to stop. And I'll discuss what happened with Credit Suisse and how they had to double the con- uh, what they ha- what they were going to do in order to increase the confidence this afternoon. Number three, of the seventeen point five trillion of bank deposits, which which I referred to before, uh, two trillion of par value is available at the uh, BTFP program, which is probably enough, probably enough to basically take care of all the issues, assuming that no more than ten percent of the money that people want to get out uh, it, that that's sufficient. Now. Neil Neil Kashkari Neil Kashkari is a Fed governor. I remember back in two thousand eight when when he was working for Hank Polson. He was a ex Goldman guy. He used to be an aerospace engineer who became a financial guy, and he was helping Polson explain to senators and congressmen why they had to have TARP. What we have right now is TARP two. I can't even remember what TARP stood for, but it was basically the bailouts, just like the, the BTFP. When, when COVID came, he, he was the guy in 60 Minutes saying infinite money, infinite money. There's infinite money to keep the system going. And now, of course, then he said, well, maybe we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have infinite money. But now they're going back to infinite money. Infinite money was even better than Bernanke's helicopter money. So this is pretty interesting. Um, Two trillion is the treasury is held outside the five largest banks. Um, so two trillion of par value carrying is probably going to be adequate. The U.S. estimated accrued losses is $650 billion. That's accrued losses on interest rates. If you have a 20-year bond, if interest, rate go, if interest goes from 1% to 5%, you just lost 30% of your value. So um, I got that number from J.P. Morgan. It seems small to me, but that's what they have. And finally, is any of this surprising? Is anything of what happened last week surprising? Because, you know, it's always like new information, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, how did this happen? Where did this come from? Well, you know, the COVID liquidity crisis was three years ago. Meme investing in NFTs where stuff worth nothing went to huge amounts was to, was a year and a half ago. Credit Suisse actually was under near bankruptcy six, seven, seven months ago in 2022. Carl, you and I and our friends were talking about it, right? The UK pension collapse was five months ago. Did people really think who thought about it, that this is, these are just isolated events. FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, good-looking guy. You know, he, he doesn't want any money. He just wants to give it away to nice people. He's such a great guy. Um, you know, that was interesting. There goes two, three billion. Um, so what was that about, right? Commercial real estate. BlackRock stopped redeeming commercial real estate. Well, most commercial real estate loans are held by, guess what, regional banks. So when Silicon Valley, First Republic, Silver Date Signature shows up two weeks ago, when Credit Suisse, it used to be one of the 30 largest systemic banks in the world, 
has a systemic problem and disappears, uh, don't be surprised if there's more problems to come up. It might get kicked down the road, but don't be surprised. Uh, slide eight called fundamentals. Uh, what, what happened to UBS today? I'll just offer a few thoughts. If you follow it closely, it's almost a full-time job. Uh, you'll know a lot of it, but I'm going to comment on it. Uh, first comment, an ugly marriage is probably better than an ugly divorce. So they, they forced, uh, the government forced UBS to buy a credit squeeze. Uh, 0.76 Swiss francs, 3.25 billion. Last week, some commentators and Twitter guys, ladies, gals, were saying that, uh, geez, you know, look at, uh, at uh, Credit Suisse. It's down 50%. It's 50%. 15 years ago, Credit Suisse was $100. Now it's like last week it was $2. Credit Suisse has been falling for 15 years since 2008. I've been aware of it, so that's not shouldn't be a surprise. Now, they were going to give, uh, Credit Suisse was going to get, uh, UBS was going to get a $54 billion credit line to do the acquisition as of this morning. That got changed to $100 billion this afternoon. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so we know capital may be a problem out there. Now, there's, there's going to be bad will in the accounting. Usually when you buy something, you pay more than what it's worth. That's called goodwill. You have to write it off or you have to bury it. What they do is they bury it. So their PE multiples remain really cool. If you, if you had all the acquisitions done the last 20 years and you actually accounted for it properly, everybody would realize, and if you also accounted for options and pension costs, everyone would realize that the PE multiples are actually infinite for pretty much everybody i.e. zero real earnings, which is interesting, which explains the wealth inequality, explains why millennials aren't making a lot of money. It explains why social services are declining. Very interesting. So the net capital right now is going to be about 14%, plus on top of that 2%, 16%. So they've gone from 2 or 3% capital in the old days to like 16%, five times. That's interesting. The UBS assets are $1.1 trillion. Uh, so Credit Suisse is 0.5 trillion. You've got uh, now about uh, 50, 150 billion of equity. Hopefully that works out okay. And uh, since 2008, if you looked at Credit Suisse, you had a zigzag correction. The zigzag correction lasted for eight, nine years. Then we had an instantaneous impulse wave. So when you get a bear market, all every once in a while you get the impulse wave, and that's what Bob Prechter's quote worrying about. You know, for the Dow, for the S&P, for the NASDAQ, etc. Now, they, they killed the contingent convertible bonds. It's only a billion dollars. Basically, the debt got written off. The equity got basically written off. And uh, they're not bailing out equity. So you know that that would not be politically adept. We'll see how long that lasts. If you kill equity, you, you might kill collateral. You might kill everything. So, so far, they're trying to play it safe. But but if they have to support equity with with Money they will, but so far they're being careful. Investment banking as business has probably peaked. Uh, when Credit Suisse hit its peak, they bought First Boston, the investment bank. Now they're getting rid of First Boston, and it's probably peaked. In 1999, I remember the Economist magazine when when the clock shifted had the big article. Economist always gets everything wrong. This would be the century of finance. I'm going to think it's going to be the century of definancing, and uh, we'll see for sure. Now, in the old days, when a bank made a loan, they had the five C's. I'm gonna, you're going to think I'm like aged and decrepit. I probably am. Character, capacity, cash flow, collateral, conditions. Right now, of course, nobody even knows what that stuff is. It's just, you know, what's, what's the risk category and what rate do you have to charge? 
we may go back to the old method of relationship banking, etc. As this whole thing unfolds, it's happened every cycle. So don't, I wouldn't be surprised what happened this cycle versus the old trustless economy. Okay, is this a banking crisis? Well, there's a bunch of banks which have gone down in the last 10 years. Those are the inflation-adjusted equity bases of those banks. You're going to notice it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, even bigger than inflation. So we'll see. We'll see. But this is what's happening. Okay, slide, uh, slide, um, slide 9, 10, and 11. Now, these are the interesting slides taking us to building a portfolio. I'm going to start with slide 9. And this is going to tie into what we'll be talking about the future and specific assets, gold, silver, etc. Uh, now, what do I personally believe? If I could just share my thoughts on portfolios. Portfolios should be robust and anti-fragile. Nicholas Taleb's term, it shouldn't be fragile. So um, this will sound sort of uh, psychological and emotional, but you can't give theories on what should be in a portfolio, or even what a portfolio is or what money is or what wealth is. You don't cover these issues, so I'll cover them. Uh, real quick, I I try to apply it. It's taken me decades. I'm probably, I don't know, halfway there maybe, um, hopefully. And my wife thinks I am. And uh, so um, here's what's important in a portfolio. Number one, the most important asset is you have to believe life is inherently good. And reality is created by wisdom, your wisdom. Not your attitude, but your wisdom. And the reason I say attitudes, worrying with attitude, having a good attitude is a bad idea is that most people who try to have a good attitude have a good attitude about how terrible the world is or how lousy the world is. It doesn't work. It only, it's like dieting or, or, or fitness memberships. From what just doesn't work. You have to have wisdom, and that's where portfolio management and wealth accumulation and capital starts. Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are all over this. Number two, income earning ability is the first asset, human capital, hard skills and soft skills, IQ, EQ, and SQ. Chat GPT is okay. Trustless Bitcoin is fine. It's all cool. Uh, technical analysis, fundamental valuation, whatever. But if you haven't got intelligent quotient, emotional quotient, social quotient, you can't maintain any of it anyway. And there's a reason for it because maintaining capital requires emotional intelligence, emotional control. And you, if you haven't got IQ, EQ, and SQ, you're not going to have it. Three, maintain a spouse or a significant other. Maintain a family. Single is too expensive and divorce is even more expensive. If you haven't got that, you cannot accumulate capital. Never in the history of person kind um, have you, as a single person without a partner, at least one partner, been able to accumulate capital. It's impossible. It doesn't work to prove my history. Four, no debt except the home mortgage. This concept of repayment by refinancing is very weary. It, it, and it doesn't work. I mean, it only works in these massive inflationary eras. But as I mentioned, no real increase in value has occurred since 1965 in the stock market. That should tell you something. Refinancing is the road to poverty. Most people under 40 probably don't even know what I'm talking about, that refinancing is, a, is, is bad, doesn't work. Two years of cash. Now, what typic typically said when, you, when you're talking about refinancing, um, what, nor, what in, in your opinion, what are people refinancing for? What are they buying when they're refinancing? Holidays, cottages, cars, uh, paying off their education, everything. So basically, they're they're refinancing. Oh, their house, their house. You got a house. Yeah, yeah. You go from five percent to twenty five percent, then you refinance, go back to five percent. 
so the, so you're only talking necessarily about people that are refinancing and, and basically uh, buying liabilities, not people that are refinancing to buy assets. Because I know people do that, right? Very, very, very dangerous. Uh, very, very dangerous. Uh, if you're doing that, boy, you better understand how to run scenarios. You better have a spreadsheet with different assets, what could happen with each one, what the variability is, interest rate risk. You have to be very, very, very sophisticated because borrowing to buy paper assets, as Buffett and Munger says, is, is dangerous. And maybe it didn't matter for 30 or 40 years, although the stock market did fall 50% in 2008, you know, and the NASDAQ did fell 90% in 1999, and people do get wiped out. Um, but you got to be careful. And if you can't do a diligent mathematical analysis and be monitoring it all the time, and have uh, repayment points, buy points, etc. It's the road to constant poverty. Well said, Sid. All right, continue. Okay, financial models. Uh, you, no guessing. Now, I can. I used to be a a a, a convertible preferred convertible commercial paper commercial paper futures trader. I built financial models in the nineties. And I was one of the first guys who would look at the zero curves and the reinvestment rates of those curves for institutions. Believe me, most financial models, even to the present time, are completely wrong. That people build on spreadsheets and that people, when they use their NPVs and IRRs and actuarial formulas from university, it's very, very different from what you think. And it takes, it takes a while to explain that. Uh, but one way to explain it is the following. I'll give an illustration. If you have a 5% bond, and rates go to 1% and your bond doubles in price, you're poorer than you were before. Just think about it. You have a, a, a $100,000 bond paying 5%, interest rates go to 1%, that bond is now trading at 140000 bucks. I can show you mathematically you're poorer than you were before the bond went up. And that's because the reinvestment rates declined and your future value is not going to be there. The, whole, the YTM, yield to maturity, isn't what really happens. It's the reinvestment rate that, that produces the future value. And that's very interesting, right, Carl? We, we talked about that a while back. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Invest slowly and learn from mistakes. You'll make many. <laughs> Invest slowly and learn from mistakes. You'll make many. Someone said to me, should I buy gold? I said, well, I've been buying gold for a while. But here's how I would do it. If you're going to buy a certain amount of gold, buy 10%. And then watch what happens. And then wait for your waiting period and set your waiting period up front and explain to yourself why you have that waiting period. Then buy 10% more, then buy 10% more. But if you're, if you're averaging down, you got to think about why the heck you're buying gold. If you're averaging up, that's a good thing. That's very different from what people are taught to do by TD securities. Right. Have you heard of the, uh, the book dying of money? No. What, what is it? Sorry. Dying of money. No, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. I just got a private message from someone saying that they're reading that book and it kind of pertains to a lot of the things you're, you're, you're talking of right now. That's great. I'd like to get the title. I'd love to take a look at it. Okay. Eight, read and study very carefully and apply principles carefully. I'll tell you how many hours of studying it takes to understand markets. 10,000 hours. So uh, put down how many hours you have per week to focus on wealth accumulation and stuff like that. If you haven't got 10,000 hours, 
then you should maybe focus on one type of market, one type of asset. It is incredibly complicated. So you're scaring everybody right now. So you, you're telling me, Sid, that you can't just go on Twitter and follow people and make money? Only if you want to lose everything you have. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, usdebtclock.org. Um, I, I took a copy of that this afternoon. All the numbers are bigger. On the bottom right, $544,586 is the liability per citizen in the United States, man, woman, and child. Uh, including, you know, national debt, state debt, personal debt, social obligations. This is why the social obligations are going to have to get written off. And this is why we need inflation. It's got to get written off through inflation. Very interesting chart worth worth looking at. Next chart, second last slide is uh, 10. Portfolio of wealth, robust, fragile, and anti-fragile. You want a robust, anti-fragile portfolio. A robust portfolio is a portfolio that's not going to decline in the worst of times or very little. An anti-fragile portfolio is a portfolio which, when, when things go well, they go really, really, really well. But anti-fragile investments tend to be a little risky, like options or other such things. So you only put maybe 10% of your money, but you have to have a spreadsheet and figure out how much, because it's got to tie to everything else you're doing, into anti-fragile investments. So robust keeps you safe. Or as, War, as like Warren Buffett likes to say, don't lose your capital. And anti-fragile, maybe over time, makes you rich. Unless you're a full-time professional trader or you're running your full-time growth business over a long period of time. Number nine, control emotions. Control your emotions takes about 2,000 hours of training. And that is a complicated subject. But if you want to know why people uh, do back testing, get these models. And when they do their back testing and they trade based on historical data, they make money. As soon as they, in theory, on paper, as soon as they put the real money out, boom, they start losing money. Why is that? Because as soon as it goes up, they feel good. They get nervous. If as soon as it goes down, they get real nervous. They, they, uh, they uh, average down and they sell. <laughs> and then they don't buy when it goes up or they sell it because they made their profit. Everything I'm supposed to do is what they do. Emotional control. But of course, if you don't understand the principles, emotional control is not going to help you. Anyway, if you understand the principles, you need emotional control. So you need both. Ten, like Soros says, and I love the way, I love that phrase. I just, I love the guy. I, I know him personally, and I used to like him, then I didn't like him, but now I have no idea. But his books are fantastic, and he's really smart. All economic theories are fertile fallacies when it comes to paper assets, like the English pound, where he made his billions of dollars. All economic theories are fertile fallacies. It's not true. Maybe it works for a while. Figure out where, where the fallacy is going in general and get there before everybody else realizes it. There's only one model, in my opinion, that works, and that is create your universe and know that everything you see is always changing. The world's always changing. Create your universe. Eleven, don't worry too much about the international situation. War, the Republicans, the Democrats. This, that, unless you're a full-time politician or a full-time revolutionary or a full-time social leader, great. Okay, that's your job, fine. But if you're not, don't worry about it. Nothing new about it. But do think about the financial implications. Stay with the assets you know and the geographies you know and the asset structures you know. Assets, geographies, asset structures. An old home is good for various reasons. Now, there's two charts in the bottom there. 78-year interest cycle. You'll notice in the 1940s to 1970, interest rates went straight up, pretty much. You'll notice from 1970s till now, interest rate went straight down. 
What do you think they're going next? You think they're going down? They're going up, man. And for a long time, for a long time, they're going up. And the problem is most people on this call only lived in the second half towards the, the end of the second half. If you, if you haven't studied this stuff, then it's hard to understand. Uh, well, you're basically entitled. You've lived in an entitled era. Yeah. And, and if you look at those two things, the Civil War to the 1929 cycle and the 1945 to the, 19, uh, to the 2010 cycle, you'll, you'll see that, you know, now that entitled era really got extended in the late 1990s. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's hard not to become a prisoner of your environment where you were born. Bottom right on page, on this page, 1965 divides real money bull market era from the Fed notes, paper money, pretend money era. Look, if you look at that chart, the peak was 29. The late 90s, it got higher. We're back to 29. That's the truth. That's why the world, and that's why life financially seems sort of tough right now. It's in that chart. It's worth taking a study at it. Bob Prechter, late wave theory. I study all of his books. He's awesome. And, uh, so I, I, I read a lot of stuff, and I look at a lot of stuff. And most of it's no good. But when I find something that makes sense, I go with it until it doesn't make sense anymore. Last slide, things to be aware of. One, statistics are generally silly. Uh, it's a long discussion why I say that. Two, averages do not apply in the real world. You're not, you're, you're not an average, you're you. And uh, if you're poor and rich and you die poor, you know, okay, on the average, you were well-to-do. Well, who cares? You're living an impoverished life at the end, et cetera, et cetera. Variance can be infinite, infinite variance. So, you know, standard deviations, normal distribution curves, not the real world. Gold and silver could fly if people start demanding the actual metal, which is a distinct possibility. That's something to be aware of, and that may be happening, may, may happen. Derivatives. The world derivative market is $2 trillion. That's a big number, right? Thousands, millions, billions, trillions. Two, two quadrillion, 2,000 trillion. Have I got that right? Uh, let me see. 1,000 million billion. Yeah, that's how big the river of market is. That's a big number. Well, it's, it's notional. Though. That's a big number. Nobody knows who they owe and what to. And if a few guys start to fall apart, every, the whole thing falls apart. You don't hear about that yet. But if in like six months or, or 12 months or in two weeks is a derivatives problem, gee, well, oh, there was fraud. How could they do this? They weren't financially astute. Well, it's, it's all there right now. No one's hiding it. That's a risk. Big number, counterparty risk, accounting risk. Futures. When you buy futures, they may have to get off your position. You may have to pay to get off your position. Sorry. There's that kid who in 2020 bought oil futures at zero and ended up having to pay $750,000 to get off the futures. He killed himself. So he didn't know what he was, what he was buying. Cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies are great. If you're not buying it in a node or a full node, or even if it's not a full node, it's not cryptocurrency. You can't centralize and then decentralize an asset and think it's decentralized. Uh, yeah, or you can't, yeah, you can't centralize a decentralized asset. So that's something interesting. Now, when people ask me about cryptocurrency, I'll, I'll just say this. You know, Roosevelt, the cryptocurrency of the 1930s was, you can hear me, right, Carl? Okay, yeah, I the you. cryptocurrency of the 1930s was gold. And you know what? Roosevelt said, if you hold gold, you're going to char be charged $10,000, which is like a million dollars of today's money, and you go to jail. So he decided, well, he didn't, want, he didn't want the cryptocurrency of that age. So just be aware that when you live in a country, uh, these governments are pretty powerful.
because they got guns and they got the military. Banks. Uh, this came out of the Financial Times today, written by Megan Green, Financial Times, March 19th, 2023. Here's what she wrote. Investors and depositors must not only believe that banks have good capital ratios, ample access to liquidity and behave responsibly, but also that the supervising and regulatory architecture put in place after 2008 to save the system works. In the short term, there can be gradations of confidence in all of this. But when we finally look in the box, investors must either trust all of these things or none. It's a binary outcome. The cat can't be a little dead. Megan Green, Financial Times. Um, that was the front page of the Financial Times today. Ooh. And people are talking about bank runs and all banks going bust the front page of the Financial Times. I'll say what I've been saying throughout most of this talk. That's interesting. Commercial real estate. 30% of commercial real estate, sorry, 30% of regional bank assets are commercial real estate. 8% of U.S. Uh, of big bank assets are real estate. Real estate's a friggin' mess. BlackRock stopped redeeming the real estate mutual funds like, what, three months ago, four months ago? That's one of the reasons people got concerned about regional banks. Not that they had to be, but that's what set it off. And it's all emotional and psychological, not fundamentals of how people feel. Private equity markets, you don't hear much about private equity, but private equity is funding VCs and funding all kinds of, of growth stocks, etc. Something to watch about. You don't hear much about it. We'll have to see. Inflation is actually caused by government spending. Inflation is not caused by retail consumer spending. The government controls over half of total spending these days, over half. So when Jerome Powell, his royal highness, says he's going to kill consumers and force them to stop spending money, we know that's a scam. We know what's not true. It's the government spending that's been causing all these issues. Government giveaways. That's just, in my opinion, an unfortunate fact. Or as, uh, what's his name? said, an inconvenient truth. What's that guy's name? The vice president. Uh, can't remember. Uh, Eleven. Every Fed tightening ends in disaster. Why is that? I'll say it again. Every Fed tightening well, we're seeing it right ends now. in disaster. Why is that? It's not because the Fed is stupid. And it's not because the Fed doesn't know when to pivot. It's because the Fed doesn't do anything. It's all pretend. The Fed follows the rates. And rates go up. Yeah, they are. Go ahead. They're reactive. They're reactive. Right. You see, the rates are up because the market is charging more for risk and credit. And people are boring more and more on the short end because people that are bad risks can't bore in the long end, et cetera, et cetera. Then you get the inversion of the yield curve. Because it's always the short-term borrowers who get who who start to be a problem first. Later, later the long end goes. Then the Feds is always have to tighten. No, they don't. They have to follow because when the Feds paying half a percent and the market's paying five percent, the Feds realize they're not weak. Therefore, why does the Fed tightening um, the loose thing into disaster? Because the economy is already going into the tubes. You're getting into a recession slash depression, whatever. That's the disaster was already going to happen. Twelve. Remember about Russia, China, gold-based ruble, the the petrol one. They're getting together, the commodity currencies. They want to get away from the U.S. system. Uh, you don't hear about that, but at some point they'll say, "Oh, we should know what's going to happen." So those are things to be aware of, uh, and and to put into your model and think about and. These will be the surprises they talk about, who, you know, who would have known? This is what, it's going to be the who would have known 
in one month, two months, or two years. I don't know. Uh, finally, the uncertainty principle, Heisinger and Schrodinger. There's, there's a physics joke there. I won't go through it. I thought it was pretty funny. I uh, was a, a modeler and a physicist originally, a physical chemist, and I always thought that was a funny joke. Okay, sir. That's the update. Well, Sid, I just want to say thank you very much for going through everything. Um, I know you do not care at all about fo followers, but I will say, I think at two spaces ago, I think you had like 65, and you're you're definitely far from that now. So, uh, if you uh, if you appreciate Sid's content today, definitely give him a follow. Um, there's so many places we can take it. I there's a couple of questions that I that I had come in. Um, let me just get into my DMs here, and. Um, Give me one second, Sid. All right. So this is from Bearish Bull. I'm currently reading Dying of Money, and I feel it pertains a lot to the conversation here, particularly regarding the velocity of Whoa. money, price and yeah, income velocity, transaction velocity. Um, would you have any comments on today's velocity and how that slack could prove why inflation is so sticky? Um, sure. Uh, uh, well, uh, the uh, government uh, velocity's changed somewhat. I, I don't even think it's down, is it? I mean, I think I don't think velocity money has changed that much. You know, price times volume, price times quantity of GDP and physical units equals money times how many times money turns over. Okay, if you look at the money supply per se, just go back to page. Um, uh, page uh, 2020, uh, page uh, six. The money supply, even before velocity, has gone up about uh, 10 to 15 percent in 18 months. In March of 2020, the money supply went up 25 percent. Trump, one afternoon, decides he's going to increase the deficit by <laughs> four trillion dollars. Um, that's the problem government spending. And, uh, yeah, you know, velocity goes up, velocity goes down. I'm not sure how much has changed that much. Uh, can you tell me what's happened to the measured velocity of money in the last 18, 24 months? I don't know. Let me see here. I'll do what everybody else does. I'll either use chat GPT or Google. Velocity of money chart. Let's see. Let's see what's happening here. Uh, velocity of M2 money, St. Louis Fed. Uh all right, the velocity has gone down from uh, 2.2 to 1.2. Gee, in 2000, it was 2.2. 2. In 2020, it was 1.4. Now it's 1.2. All right, so the velocity has gone down by 16%. I think 0.2 over 12, right? 16%. But if you look at my chart here, the money supply has gone up by something like 10 to 15%. So the money supply itself has at least is equaled or exceeded what's happening so there you go basically uh things are are let's say sort of flattish um at worst and probably going up until last week now we know for sure it's going up because people are drawing the money out the government's pumping more in so it's uh it's getting worse now there's something else i want to share so that's all i can add uh, uh, you know i i have I, i'm not an expert on these measurements and i know they, they keep changing the numbers and they keep faking the numbers. And if you look at the academic reports on fake government statistics, there's papers I've read recently, I could find them, that basically the statistics are always changing. 
and they're generally changing the numbers all the time. So I would guess that the velocity of money is at the very least um, pretty much unchanged, but the total money is increasing. And I think that's sort of uh, what's happening. But we know as of last week, it's gone up big time. And uh, now, uh, if you look at the, at the cash, fiat cash, 2.3 trillion, uh, treasury is 24 trillion, that's savings. But bank deposits is 15 to 18 trillion. Now that's spending. There's your spending. So the spending money has gone up by uh, 315, 20% in 18 months. There's your spending. So between personal spending plus government spending, there's inflation. Now, uh, why, do, why does the government absolutely and totally need inflation? It's real simple. Go to slide nine. Federal debt is 31 trillion. But the total unfunded liabilities is six times that, 180 trillion. 30 trillion, 180 trillion. That's got to get inflated away. And real inflation, I would say, is probably closer to 10%, real inflation. And after five years at 10%, you've just deflated that number by 65%. And that's why you know they're not getting rid of inflation. But now is that assuming that they're going to stay well they're not now but in a a, a tightening cycle because i mean if you look at the fed's balance sheet they just threw on what 300 billion yep. and just they basically just evaporated the four months of the eight month right. uh, qt cycle well google how much of the u.s federal treasuries are owned by the uh the fed uh during covid it was like i don't know 30 percent. now it's like 20 percent. you just google it and you'll, you'll go to the fed pages you'll see if the Fed wasn't holding and buying those bills and treasury bonds, you know, average life of probably, I don't know, eight years, nine years, uh, interest rates would go skyrocketing to where they were under Volcker in 79. That's how bad it is right, right. now. Okay, so uh, the, uh, the person that just sent us that question just wanted to say uh, thank you very much. Uh, couldn't have asked for a better commentary on it. Thank you. Cheers. And uh, yeah, so there was another question that came in earlier, and I didn't want to stop you because it kind of is that it's definitely uh, going in a different direction. But um, so the question was, how does Sid feel about the current housing market in Canada? And uh, what's your guess on where it's going or the uh, housing market's going? Well, uh, BlackRock stopped redeeming. Um, Units in their real estate funds. I know they're American, but but they did, number one. Uh, number two, one of the reasons probably for the draw on the regional banks was real estate. Um, so a little scary. A little scary. Uh, a lot of people are paying uh, maybe 2.5% on a five-year mortgage and, and uh, you know maybe uh, the same on a variable rate mortgage. The guys who are still in their five-year mortgages are fine for now, but the guys who are paying two and a half are now at, what, 7%? Uh, 7% of 500,000 is, uh, what is that, 35,000? 1%, 2% is a rounding error. Get a little tough. Um, well, I guess I'll just ask my question then, because I know you you believe that rates are gonna go are gonna continue to go up or stay up for longer. And there's a there's a U.S. Fed meeting this week. So do you think if they were to pause, um, you know that that's just a short term thing, and they're gonna keep going back up, or like what's your take? Sure. 
take a look at the chart of interest rates. And this is something that you have to really start to be an experienced trader to know. Take a look at the chart on slide 10 of the interest rates. Okay. And it, let's, let's look at the decline of the rates from uh, 1980 until now. Okay. So here's what those rates did. I'm going to go through it. They went from 16% to, to uh, 14%, to 13%, sorry. Then they went back up to 14%, right? So down and up, pretty big. Then it went to 10%. Then it went up to 13%. That's what's called a correction. Then it went down to 9%. Then it went to 11%, correction. And then it went down to 7%. And then it went up to 7%. Uh, sorry, it went to 5%. Then it went to 7%. And then it went to 4.5%. Then it went to 6%. Then it went to 3%, then it went to 5%. Then you get the picture? It was an accordion, back and forth and back and forth, but the trend was straight down. So when we sit here and look at the chart, you're going to say, oh, this, this goes straight down. No, it doesn't. It goes down X, and it goes up half of X. Then it goes down X again and goes up half of X, right? And the same thing was true on the way up. So I don't care if the rates go down for, you know, like we're at, you know, what's the Fed funds rate now? Almost five? Is it five? Something like that. I don't care if it goes to four and a half or four. It's going to go back to six because that's the way it always works over the entire course of history. And, uh, the, and when you look at long-term rates, long-term rate trends go on for a long time. And by the way, you know what the average mortgage rate was over the 20th century? 6%. We're just modestly above the average mortgage rates in a highly inflationary environment, which means the real rates right now are low. So, yeah, they're going up. Now, it's just like weight gain and weight loss. You don't, you don't, you don't go straight down. You don't go straight up. But if you're gaining weight, you get fatter and fatter over time. If you're losing weight, you get skittier and skittier. And you, there's ups and downs, especially after dinner or after you, when you wake up in the morning. So. You know, that's why people like to weigh themselves in the morning, unless you're a bodybuilder. So, um, you know, uh, they're going up. So when it comes to um, sort of what's going on right now with Credit Suisse, um, what, what do you think is happening right now with the banking sector? You're like, I know in a private chat you were talking about central bankers are scrambling. This I know exactly what's happening because I was intimately involved in this stuff. I was, uh, I was, uh, a mining promoter, I, I was uh, lobbying senators, congressmen, all kinds of guys in New Mexico and in Texas and in Washington between 2007 and 2015. I ended up talking to a lot of senators and congressmen back then about all this stuff, and it was sort of fun. And I know what was happening back then, so I pretty much know what's happening right now. All the banks are going crazy, checking everything out, looking at their looking at what's, what's, uh, what's going to happen on Monday, hoping everything gets saved, everybody is good. And when the, you know, uh, I'm going to, when, when the Financial Times is only about bank liquidity and, and financial contagion, you know, UBS agrees 3.25 billion rescue deal for rival for Credit Suisse. Fall of Credit Suisse shows more need is, more work is needed on bank risk. Lex, UBS Credit Suisse shotgun wedding aims to forestall contagion. These are the headlines. Live news, S&P downgrades First Republic for second time in a week. Uh, well... <laughs> What does that tell you? Uh, people are hoping that the contagion 
doesn't occur and everything gets salvaged. My gut instinct, but of course, I'm like everyone else. I'm always hoping for the best and hope I don't get killed on my stock portfolio this week, right? I'm like everybody else. Uh, my gut instinct is that we'll make it through here, but things are getting harder all the time. Uh, the banks are struggling right now. Credit has tightened up at banks on mortgages badly. A lot of guys cannot get loans anymore, right? Really tightened up in the United States and really tightened up in Canada. Uh, real estate start getting very hard to move now. So that's what's going on all weekend, and that's what banks are talking about. Um, there was a huge uh, need for, um, and I don't even see this in Financial Times. Let me look at, let me just Google this. Uh, you know, uh, I should get ChatGPT and see if they can do it for me. You know, uh, swap lines uh, today, uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, you know, uh, central bank liquidity swaps, Federal Reserve Board. Uh, you know, this this stuff, there's a big demand for it right now, right? Fed and other central banks try to head off crisis three hours ago, CNN. Fed and other central banks try to head off crisis by keeping dollars flowing. There's a big euro, euro dollar problem right now. Uh, bank of Canada, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, European Central Bank, Federal Reserve, Swiss Bank, they announcing a coordinated action to enhance the provision of liquidity via standing U.S. dollar liquidity swap lines. Does that sound like possible uh, contagion that the trend will stop? Yeah. I That's mean, right now. do you want to elaborate on that? Sure. Um, all kinds of loans are getting called in, and counterparty loans are getting uh, called in on swap lines all around the world. And a whole bunch of dudes owe U.S. dollars. And uh, they haven't got them. So the U.S. government has got to make U.S. dollars available by providing more swaps. That's happening right now. That started to happen uh, when the interest rates started going up. That's what's happening. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty simple way of explaining it, Sid. Yep. There's a demand for U.S. dollars because loans have got to get repaid. And people are calling uh, deposits on U.S. dollars. And then the, the money's being kicked out of the system, going to T-bills, and then the government's putting it back into T-bills, giving it to banks. And that's international, not just uh, local. And the U.S. government is making U.S. dollars available to the rest of the world. Why? Because that's how they control the world, as Putin and Jinping sort of know. And that's, <laughs> you know, so you can't give the guys dollars. And actually, the U.S. is going to really like it politically, at least the military will, because now they've got more and more people beholden to them. You know, the United Kingdom had to borrow their way to fight World War II. You know when those debts got paid off? Uh, recently, U.S., let me see, U, U.K., World, you know, World, uh, World War II debt repayment. Uh, when, when made, let's see, it was like a few years ago, right? Uh, oh, Britain finally pays off World War II debt. Let's see. When was that? That was like uh, uh, six. You know, it was like, uh, what was the date on that thing? Just recently. It took, it was, oh, that was 2006. So from 1945 to 2006, it took Britain that long to pay off their debts. Well, the borrow has been borrowing from the Fed and the U.S. since 1945. So that's the way the U.S. controls the world, right? That's plus some other methods we're aware of. And uh, that's why you need swap lines, because every time guys have to repay some of the debt or pay more interest, they take their currency, they swap it for U.S. dollars, and, late, and afterwards, it'll get reversed. 
but they have to, you know, pay the interest, pay the debts, etc. So when these contagions occur, it hits the derivatives, and then you hit derivatives on top of the derivatives. You have to, and when you do a debt uh, swap, unlike a fixed to variable rate swap, you have to exchange your principal. So it's pretty awful. You need to, you need to swap a hundred percent of the capital, and then with forwards you reverse it. So it's bad news, man. So far, it's working. Well, Sid, where do you kind of want to end it tonight here? Um, you know, we, we, we've covered those slides in, in pretty good detail. Um, well, you know, what are, how, are you pre- how are you preparing yourself for, for next, for tomorrow and the weeks to follow your your? Well, uh, number one, uh, I, I mentioned before, this is just me. I'm not advising anybody anything. You can't because you have to, you have to live with them to know what, what they may want to do and just offer ideas. I'm heavily into uh, Lockheed Martin. I'm getting uh, more gold. Uh, I've actually got some juniors because I'm like a junior uh, junior guy. So I've got some gold stocks. I'm looking at uranium. Uh, I'm very. I'm only investing with management that I know backwards and forwards, and I can have an influence on them because otherwise uh, it's uh, it's dangerous. And um, I'm uh, getting ready to uh, short some S and P stocks at the right time. <laughs> I don't right. short unless well, all the sectors are turning over, so it's still too early. NASDAQ and the S&P is too strong. There will be lots of chances to short stocks. That, no, that's just me. That, that's just me, right? That's just me. I also hold a lot of cash. Right. Uh, would you be buying real estate right now, Sid? Me personally, I own a, a chunk of condos and stuff like that, but that's it. No, I, I, I personally would not be buying real estate now, personally. Am I, would you short the Would you short the U.S. dollar here? Nope, no, nope, I'm not an expert in the U.S. dollar. Uh, I'm basically an S and P 500 guy, and then I I look at the uh, the S and P Nasdaq value line, and uh, then I look at the chart. And the charts I look at are like I mentioned before: one day, hourlies, weeklies, monthlies, yearlies, and they all have to coordinate. And then when I start to see a uh, an impulse wave, a motive wave. Uh, there's two tests. There's a couple of tests I use. I use all the Elliott Wave stuff, and then Jesse Livermore, how to trade stocks. I love the guy. He's, he's awesome. Too bad he blew his brains out in 1940, but you know he was having personal problems. Um, and I use his model. I use his model. I study it in great detail. All kinds of people study him through secondary sources, and they read humorous stories like reminiscence of a stock operator. I actually read his book. He 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 wrote together in his later years. It's 100 pages. I've gone through his trading patterns in great detail. Took me a long time to figure it out, and I use his principles. And he basically uh, only moves when the odds are massive in his favor, which means the stock, the sector, and the market, and all the markets have to be moving in the right direction. So that's that's when I sort of move U.S. dollar. U.S. dollar is strong as hell, and and, and they're weaponizing it more and more. And when you read but swaps coming on, you know it's going to get stronger, not weaker. You know, you and I have talked about it. I've been a you know a buyer of the USD, you know, going quite a while back, and I've done awfully well on it, right? Yeah, that's right. You actually were averaging up. Yeah, yeah. It's one point three seven. I just started to buy it three four three three. You know, it's okay. So regional banks here in the U.S. Uh, what do you think happens there in the next few weeks to a month? I have no idea, but that's where the risk is. That's where the risk is. Uh, 
you, you see, uh, when it comes to Elliott Waves, the problem is that, number one, bull markets are more predictable than bear markets, number one. Number two, bull, bull, bull markets are basically impulse waves. They're fairly predictable. Bear markets, you've got zigzags, you've got flats, you've got expanding flats, uh, you've, got, you've got doubles, triples, uh, double zigzags, and, and it's very, very hard to tell. Um, so I can't tell. So you know, have they salvaged the system? Um, you know, is, is this the big one right now? My gut instinct is uh, the bear market will continue as a flattish kind of market. Now, if you go to go to the chart on uh, go to page uh, one, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, chart one. You see where it's got um, uh, Dow Jones uh, wave status? Okay, do you see that the bottom left? Yeah. I'm going to comment on that. Can I take three minutes to talk about that? Yeah, I've got to wrap okay. it up in right. about five Look. minutes here. But okay, let's... you get the grand super cycle. He's making, he's plotting out grand super cycle, super cycle, cycle, primary, intermediate. The grand super cycle is the one that started in, uh, if you can believe it, 1970, 19, uh, sorry, 1789. The super cycle started around 1970 or something, or I'm sorry, the grand super cycle started uh, uh, in. Uh, let me think for a second here. Uh, yeah, 1789. So, so he thinks we're moving into, uh, that was number three. He thinks you're moving to number four. His target's 1,000 on the Dow. That's pretty serious, right? The super yeah. cycle started uh, 1932. We had, we had the 29th to 32 down. We had the, uh, the 1859 to 29 up, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he thinks that is going to, his targets on that super cycle, which is super cycle A, is 1,000. Cycle was 4,500. That started in 80. The primary started around 2,000. The intermediate's right now. And if you look at the chart at the top right, you see intermediate one, intermediate two. Those are about four, four to six months. So we're in intermediate three. His target is 20,500. So we're going to find out in the next um, three, four, five months if we get to 20,500 in the Dow, if not, uh, then if it's okay, then we know this thing continues for quite a while. It's okay. So we'll see. But I, I track all that stuff and I take it down to the days and the weeks. And by the way, the fractals mirror each themselves in all these different cycles. And that's why you have to look at them all simultaneously. They don't mirror themselves in theory. They basically mirror themselves in practice. Sid, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, preparing those slides, going, them, going over them. I know in the uh, weeks to come, we're going to get into more specific topics, uh, elaborate a little bit more on the um, anti-fragile portfolio, talk more specifically about gold, possibly uranium, yep. and other sectors. That uranium is kind good. Of Energy is good. Energy is good. Energy is good. Yep. Yeah, we'll bring on some some guest speakers that can, you know some some people, some specialists that can talk about those things. So, um, if you haven't followed Sid yet, you definitely should. Obviously, he's uh, got tremendous value. Uh, this Twitter Spaces is being recorded, so if you missed it or you came in late, it's not a problem. You'll be able to catch the uh, recorded version. And uh, yeah, Sid, final words from you, my friend. Uh, final words. Life is awesome. Uh, have fun. Uh, being single is expensive. Being divorced is worse. And uh, you need somebody you love and you need some friends. And you have to think and have emotional control. After that, it starts to be easy. 
we'll leave it there. And I would just say, like my grandfather, just just be happy. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, ex- divorce is expensive, but you got to be happy. Right. <laughs> All right, Sid. Thank you very much, and um, catch us on the next. Thank week. you.